Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, book 11, chapter 34 of War and Peace, and we're starting book 12 today. The little girl which Pierre has saved is described at the beginning of the chapter as his burden. Why is this word chosen? Is it the same word or similar words for different translations? Um, I reckon he must surely have been going for a bit of humor there, because that word was really funny. The little burden, this little, little girl he's just saved, and she's biting and kicking at him. For some time, Pierre seems to become increasingly heroic. He saved the French soldier from being shot, saved the little girl from being burned, attacks the French soldier who is mistreating the Oriental girl, etc. Is this something that has always been inside Pierre? If not, what action or event has changed him? I think he's just found a bit of a uh, purpose, you know, or a way in which he can make a difference in this current war situation. After attacking the French soldier, Pierre is searched and soldiers find a knife in his pocket. How would his treatment be different if he had taken the gun with him? There would be a bit more trouble then. At the end of the chapter, Pierre is placed separately under strict guard because the French patrol don't trust him. What makes them distrust him and why do you think Pierre will be able to keep... And do you think Pierre will be able to keep his secret identity? Kara Kikas says, As a mum, parenting during the pandemic, referring to a young child as a burden is frighteningly real. Uh, I think the heroism that Pierre displayed is really a consequence of his overly romantic view of the world, from his half-baked attempt to free his slaves, his declaration into the night that he loved Natasha. Pierre is reckless and intense. I think it becomes... Sorry, I think it possibly comes from his having so much unexpectedly. A modern term that has been coined is sudden wealth syndrome. Sudden wealth syndrome, that's an interesting syndrome that we all wish we could be afflicted by. The real Bobcat 23 says, oh boy, we're about to enter the last volume. I'm quite excited. I think it's quite likely the officers say he saved will catch wind of Pierre's detainment. Ah, oh, you're going to come back around. Um, and uh, Rye Bread Egg says, I felt that Pierre kind of just had this kid pushed on him. Not his kid, not his problem. Wait, not his, not, it's his problem. Uh, I don't know what you mean, but yeah. I think, I think when he got rid of the kid like that at the end, it was because the kid was out of danger. The people that he was talking to seemed to know who it belonged to. And he thought, you know, okay, well, I can see someone over there being harassed. I'm going to go play the hero again here. You get the kid to its parents. I've done the hard bit of saving it from the fire. I think he just wants to do the dangerous bits. He wants to get amongst it, you know? Anyway. I am going to read you chapter 12. Book, oh, sorry. Book 12, chapter 1. Book 12 is called 1812. Chapter 1 goes like this. In Petersburg, at that time, a complicated struggle was being carried out with greater heat than ever in the highest circles between the parties of Rumiansev, the French, Maya Fedorovna, the Savich, and others, drowned as usual by the buzzing of the court drones, but the calm, luxurious life of Petersburg, concerned only about phantoms and reflections of real life, went on its old way and made it hard, except by a great effort, to realise the danger and the difficult position of the Russian people. There were the same receptions in balls, the same uh, French theatre, the same court interests and services, interests and intrigues as usual. 
only in the very highest circles were attempts made to keep in mind the difficulties of the actual position. Stories were whispered of how differently the two empresses have behaved in these difficult circumstances. The Empress Maya, concerned for the welfare of the charitable and educational institutions under her patronage, had given directions that they should all be removed to Kazam, and the things belonging to these institutions had already been packed up. The Empress Elizabeth, however, when asked what instructions she would be pleased to give with her characteristic Russian patriotism, had replied that she could give no directions about the state institutions, for that was the affair of the sovereign, but as far as she personally was concerned, she would be the last to quit Petersburg. At Anna Pavlovna's on the 26th of August, the last day of battle of Borodino, there was a soiree, the chief feature of which was to be the reading of a letter from his lordship the bishop when sending the emperor an icon of the venerable Sergius. It was regarded as a model of ecclesiastical patriotic eloquence. Prince Vasily himself, famed for his elocution, was to read it. He used to read to uh, at the empresses. The art of his reading was supposed to lie in rolling out the words quite independently of their meaning in a loud and sing-song voice alternating between a despairing wail and a tender murmur, so that the wail fell qu- quite at random on one word and the murmur on another. This reading, as was always the case at Anna Pavlovna's soirees, had a political significance. That evening she expected several important personages who had to be made ashamed of their visits to the French theatre and aroused to a patriotic temper. A good many people had already arrived, but Anna Pavlovna, not yet seeing all those whom she wanted in her drawing room, did not let the reading begin, but wound up the springs of a general conversation. The news of the day in Petersburg was the illness of Countess Bezukhova. She had fallen ill unexpectedly a few days previously, had missed several gatherings, of which she was usually the ornament, and was said to be receiving no one, and instead of the celebrated Petersburg doctors who usually attended her, had entrusted herself to some Italian doctor who was treating her in some new and unusual way. They all knew very well that the enchanting countess's illness arose from an inconvenience resulting from marrying two husbands at the same time, and that the Italian's cure consisted of removing such inconvenience, but in Anna Pavlovna's presence no one dared to think of this or even appear to know it. They say the poor countess is very ill. The doctor says it is angina pectoris. Angina, that is a terrible illness. They say that the rivals are reconciled thanks to the angina, and the word angina was repeated with great satisfaction. The count is pathetic, they say. He cried like a child when the doctor told him the case was dangerous. Oh, it would be a terrible loss. She is an enchanting woman. You're speaking of the poor countess, said Anna Pavlovna, coming up just then. I sent to ask for news and hear that she is a little better. Oh, she is certainly the most charming woman in the world, she went on, with a smile at her own enthusiasm. We belong to different camps, but that does not prevent my esteeming her as she deserves. She is very unfortunate, added Anna Pavlovna. Supposing that by these words Anna Pavlovna was somewhat lifting the veil from the secret of the Countess's malady, an unwary young man ventured to express surprise that well-known doctors had not been called in and that the Countess was being attended by a charlatan who might employ dangerous remedies. Your information may be 
better than mine, Aunt Anna Pavlovna suddenly and venomously retorted on the inexperienced young man. But I know on good authority that this doctor is a very learned and able man. He is a private physician to the Queen of Spain. And having thus demolished the young man, Anna Pavlovna turned to another group where Bilibin was talking about the Austrians having wrinkled up his face. He was evidently preparing to smooth it out again and utter one of his mots. I think it is delightful, he said, referring to a diplomatic note that had been sent to Vienna with some Austrian banners captured from the French by Wittgenstein, the hero of Petropol, as he was then called in Petersburg. What, what's that? asked Anna Pavlovna, securing silence for the mot which she had heard before. And Bilibin repeated the actual words of the diplomatic dispatch, which he had himself composed. The emperor returns these Austrian banners, said Bilibin, friendly banners, gone astray and found on a wrong path. And his brow became smooth again. Charming, charming, observed Prince Vasily. The path to Warsaw, perhaps... Uh, Prince Hippolyte remarked loudly and un unexpectedly. Everybody looked at him, understanding what he meant. Prince Hippolyte himself glanced around with amused surprise. He knew no more than the others what his words meant. During his diplomatic career, he had more than once noticed that such utterances were received as very witty, and at every opportunity he uttered in that way the first words that entered his head. It may turn out very well, he thought, but it, if not, they'll know how to arrange matters. And really, during the awkward silence that ensued, that insufficiently patriotic person entered whom Anna Pavlovna had been waiting for and wished to convert, and she, smiling and shaking a finger at Ippolit, invited Prince Vasily to the table and bringing him two candles, and the manuscript begged him to begin. Everyone became silent. Most gracious sovereign and emperor, Prince Vasily sternly declaimed, looking round at his audience, as if to inquire whether anyone had anything to say. To the contrary, but no one said anything. Moscow, our ancient capital, the new Jerusalem, receives her Christ. He placed a sudden emphasis on the word her. As a mother receives her zealous sons into her arms, and through the gathering mists, foreseeing the brilliant glory of thy rule, signs in exaltation, Hosanna, blessed is that cometh. Prince Vasily pronounced these last words in a tearful voice. Bilibin attentively exclaimed, sorry, Bilibin attentively examined his nails, and many of those present appeared intimidated, as if asking in what they were to blame. Anna Pavlovna whispered the next words in advance, like an old woman muttering the prayer at communion. Let the bold and... she whispered. Prince Vasily continued, Let the bold and insolent Goliath from the borders of France encompass... Sorry, from the borders of France encompass the realms of Russia with death-bearing terrors. Humble faith, the sling of the Russian David, shall suddenly smite his head in his bloodthirsty pride. This icon of venerable Sergius, the servant of God and zealous champion of old of our country's wheel, is offered to your imperial majesty. I grieve that my waning strength prevents rejoicing in the sight of your most gracious presence. I raise fervent prayers to heaven that the Almighty may exalt the race of the just and mercifully fulfill the desires of your majesty. What force, what style was uttered in approval both of reader and of author. Animated by that address, Anna Pavlovna's guests talked for a long time of the state of the fatherland, 
and offered various conjectures as to the result of the battle to be fought in a few days. You will see, said Anna Pavlovna, that tomorrow, on the Emperor's birthday, we shall receive news. I have a favourable presentiment. There you go, there's the chapter. Chapter 1. And away we go. Alright, have your say about it over on the subreddit, and I'll see you tomorrow.